BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Over the years, we've come back to a number of topics, and, and one of the topics that we've covered is addiction. Back in 2015, I talked to Mark Lewis, a neuroscientist and professor of developmental psychology, about why addiction is not a disease. Um, he wrote a book called The Biology of Desire. Then in 2019, I talked to my friend Travis Reeder, who's a bioethicist who went through his own crisis with opioids and wrote a book called In Pain, Tracking the Opioid Crisis in the U.S. And now, as we come out of a pandemic, and as the CDC itself has noted that opioid-related deaths have doubled over the course of the last couple years, I thought it was time to check in once again with another researcher. Carl Eric Fisher is an addiction physician and bioethicist. He's an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia, and he works at the intersection of law, ethics, and psychiatry. He also has had his own struggles with addiction, which he documents in his new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Carl Eric Fisher, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. So a couple of years ago, the last time we covered addiction research on this podcast was an interview with my friend Travis Reeder, who wrote a book called In Pain about the opioid crisis. And it came out of a personal experience. He's actually a, a bioethicist himself, and he had crushed his foot in a motorcycle injury and then had been prescribed opioids. And what he learned with his experience was that you know, the medical system was very good at treating his pain. But when they then, you know, told him it was he had to get off the opioids, there was really nothing there for him. And and that, you know, if if he couldn't just cold turkey go off them, then he was an addict. And that was a whole other field of medicine. And that was a really shocking revelation to me. And it's something, too, that it sounds as if you experienced and or that you certainly see in, in the way that the medical system works. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your experience with substances and when you realized that there is a major problem in terms of how we deal with people who have addictions. It's such a great question. And uh, I love Travis and his work and his book. It's a really useful insight. Mine was different 
in that, you know, Travis's story, as I understand it, is a person who didn't really have an addiction, but then saw the bad effects of attitudes and policies about addiction. And I, I do have addiction. So that, that is clear to me and has been clear to me for a little while. I had a lot of problems uh, throughout all of medical school, really, but then it, it reached ahead in residency. And um, I had really lovely psychotherapists and other forms of help around that time. But I think back to one therapist in particular who was quite old and just brought up in a different generation of mental health care where addiction was really dismissed. It was really dismissed by the psychoanalytic establishment following Freud in a way. And uh, I think we've done a lot within medicine to correct for that and to integrate care better. But still, there is this huge division between the treatment of substance use problems and even the rest of mental health care. And that was certainly part of the barrier with me recognizing my own problems, just in the same way that I think it's the same barrier that Travis encountered that uh, shockingly people don't know how to use the the sort of full range of interventions and don't have like a entirely 360 degree understanding of opioids and opioid use problems. So, you know, that's something I continue to see during my recovery, even as I went back to treatment, even as I went back to residency training under a sort of monitor treatment. And it was just shocking how the people around me, I had such respect for the, my supervisors and my teachers at Columbia Psychiatric Residency. And so I didn't have any doubt that they were well-motivated and very well-experienced in the care of many mental disorders. But still, there's this huge blind spot and this lack of experience and training because we've essentially segregated addiction treatment and the treatment of substance use disorders to a, the, the totally separate branches, even physically, even in our infrastructure, people have to walk down the street sometimes to go to a totally separate clinic. Travis would agree with you that he did not ever sort of th- think that he met the criteria for addiction. And um, so so give us a sense of, of what that means. Like, what is the difference between someone like Travis who is going through horrendous withdrawal and dealing with like the worst aspects of, of having to go off of a very addictive drug. And, you know, as you, as you think about yourself and, and, and sort of what's the difference? Well, that question is really the heart of the matter. That was one of the main motivating questions for me in writing the book. I had a clear sense of addiction to myself. I had a clear sense of addiction to my family and what exactly had gone wrong in me and how did I make sense of it? Uh, that's not entirely clear. Addiction studies is, I would argue, quite polarized, even more so than other branches of medicine. And we've had any number of competing definitions, even at the level of terminology. That makes for a pretty boring podcast, so I'm not going to get into the <laughs> definitional debates. Like, but, but, but I think it is important because I think that, you know, I'm, I'm the one who's, who's going to say, yeah, let's make this, this episode more boring. No, it's not. It's not at all boring because I know that for a lot of people, when they went through, if they took any psychology course in college or even high school, they were told there was a difference between a psychological addiction and a physical addiction. And if a drug, you know, gives you withdrawal symptoms like an opioid, then it's addictive. But if it doesn't, like cannabis, then 
it's not addictive. And I think that we're way past that. But I still think that a lot of people come to this with this notion that, you know, if you're if you're addicted to something, it means that you have this biological, you know, there's something clearly biological about it that, you know, and of course this makes me laugh because everything that's psychological is also biological. You know, I don't think you can separate the two. But for a lot of people, I think there is this separation between the psychology of addiction and the physical nature of it. And so I think that's where terminology is kind of important. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, I didn't want to run down a list of 15 different definitions of addiction. You could certainly come up with such a list. Uh, Here's one angle that I think illustrates the power of the definition of addiction. And I'll give you the punchline first. The punchline is they're competing definitions and there's no real agreement to the point where the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which as a lot of folks know, is the main psychiatric compendium of official definitions of mental disorders, doesn't use the word addiction, at least not in terms of defining a specific set of criteria. So what we have instead are these different sort of cultural and social understandings of addiction, and sometimes an addiction researcher or reader or uh, care provider will come up with a definition of addiction, but they're often in conflict with each other. So anyway, here's one of the distinctions that I think is instructive. One definition of addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. Mm. It's very intuitive, makes good sense. That's a completely objective definition where from the outside, you could look at somebody else and say, okay, continued use despite negative consequences. But throughout history, uh, going back to, uh, first off, AA, but then also well before AA, back to the origin of both the term and the concept addiction in modern English 500 years ago, uh, addiction means something more than that. It means more than continued use despite negative consequences. It also means an internal sense of being out of control. It means a kind of strong devotion where willpower and choice is somehow impaired, if not totally eradicated. And that necessarily introduces subjectivity into the definition. That's a definition that only through one's own self-report could you really say someone was uh, suffering from addiction. And we've had that sort of conflict and confusion in the way that we understand and treat addiction for a long, long time. So I think you're right to drill down on this. And that's sort of what I take up first in the book uh, is what do we even mean when we say the word addiction? Does it mean just a a strong and compelling desire? Can you be addicted to your social media feeds or to you know, binging television shows, or does it mean something stronger than that? Is it necessarily related to substances? And and the truth is, we have multiple competing understandings of how to make sense of that word addiction. I think that while I like this the sense of of loss of control, I also think that you know there's also this 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 trend in neuroscience that you know free will is an illusion, and none of us have control. And so, like when you're asking a person to tell you whether or not they are in control. (laughs) That's almost like a, you know, it's a straw man. And I, but I also, I'm torn because I think that isn't an important consideration where you feel like you have to do this thing, even though you know it's not the best thing for you and you really don't want to do it. I remember talking to Travis where he was like, look, there was at no point where I actually wanted to go and get high. You know, I just wanted the pain to stop. But I wonder if that's true for like, you know, do you think that there is something about this like wanting and 
I don't want that to be a judgment of any means, because of course we know that like cravings, wantings, those are those are biological mechanisms the brain has to make us do things that maybe we don't technically, you know, that aren't in our best interest. But like, do you think that's a part of it? Like, how do you how do you think about that free will part of it or the loss of control? Yeah, it's a great set of questions. You know, here's a great example of how philosophy can help us in neuroscience and discuss this briefly in the book, but there's a famous old philosopher named Harry Frankfurt who conceptualized different types of addiction. And he used the word addict, which somewhat stigmatizing to use it in the noun form, but I'll say it anyway because it's his terminology. He talked about willing and unwilling addicts. And a willing addict was somebody who, to the outside observer, just acted as if they had addiction, the most extreme substance use patterns and problems and so forth. And the unwilling addict maybe is doing the exact same set of behaviors, but they have the idea, I don't want to have these desires. Don't want to have these patterns in me. And having those different orders of desires, he might have the desire, but he might also have the desire to not have the desire, I think is an important distinction because we do see people in addiction treatment who either identify with the desire or they feel totally consonant with it. And we tend to obscure that distinction. It actually winds up being a really meaningful distinction for healthcare and policy. And even there are ways that in in past uh, generations of medical care, we were more nuanced about those sort of levels or variations of, of willing and agency. Whereas today, I think, Again, neuroscience is a big field and there are different perspectives, but in a lot of addiction neuroscience, there tends to be a dichotomy that I think is oversimplified between choice and compulsion. Either you're acting with choice or you're compelled to do otherwise. And uh, that I think can be a little misleading because it points us toward you know people with addiction as if we, I should say we, including myself, are unable to do otherwise, that we're somehow dehumanized and there's no choice whatsoever. And that, that flies in the face of my experiences and uh, most of my patients' experiences. Yeah. And that reminds me also of a conversation I had with Mark Lewis on this podcast. He wrote the book, The Biology of Desire, where he really laid out how we sometimes negate or underestimate the work that a person, particularly he was talking to people who are addicted to, to, to opioids, the work that they have to do to wean themselves off the drug. As And if we just say that this is a, a biological thing and, you know, it's a compulsion and you have, you have no control over it, then it also, you know, in some ways negates the fact that there was work that the person needed to do and that they did it. And now, like... Do you know what I mean? There's like that sense that you you also remove the agency when the person's agency is enabling them to seek and, you know, stick to a treatment. Right. Absolutely. People oftentimes have to go to incredible lengths to access their drug of choice to the point of multiple hours long quests to get resources or otherwise get access. And uh, we also know that people with addiction are responsive to different choices and different influences on their choices. The classic uh, treatment example of this is contingency management, where people get vouchers or other rewards in exchange for urines that test negative on drugs. And this was pioneered back in the 1990s, and we're still struggling to integrate it with treatment because it doesn't feel like treatment. It feels like 
you're giving someone something in exchange for the desired behavioral outcome. You know, why, why should somebody with addiction get a voucher for, say, food in exchange for testing negative on a urine test? Uh, and that, I think, points toward something unique. Even as I say this, you know, I want to be careful because I was saying earlier that addiction is too uh, segregated from the rest of mental health care. And I think that is true. And simultaneously, there's something funny about addiction where it's almost like the self fractured across time that the the different motivations and impulses can shift so rapidly uh, that in my own case, I, w- I would make a, the firmest possible resolution. I'm not going to drink anymore. And then a day later or a week later, I find myself totally clear eyed going out and violating that prior intention to the point where that my life was in danger. So there's something I think a bit odd about addiction in that sense, in terms of the not just the choice element, because there can be those different sort of variations in choice in the moment, but there can also be a, a sort of division in choices or division in intentions over time. You know, I, I think this is a really important uh, point that you're bringing up because I think it does speak a lot to the changes in our society that you know smartphones and and all these social media platforms have have brought. And, you know, it just it reminds me even of like, you know, now that my children are old enough to, you know, say things, they, you know, my son the other day was like, every time you check your phone for something that we need, whether it's weather or the maps, you know, you end up to this one page called all inboxes. What is all inboxes? Mm. And I was like, yeah, I, I feel a compulsion to check my email whenever I pick up my phone. And, and so like, even though I know that it's like, it's not the right thing, and I don't want to do it. And I make all these things that I'm going to, okay, I'm with my kids. I'm not going to, I'm not going to check my email, but it, you know, and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, should we be thinking about these things? You kind of brought that up earlier as a kind of question. And I, and I wonder what your answer is. Like, should we be thinking about some of these other kind of uh, behaviors that hitch right into the same reward pathways? They hitch right into the same kind of you know, evolutionary mechanisms whereby, you know, we elicit cravings and, and you know, it shapes our behavior, um, but don't have a kind of overt physical change the way a drug would on your brain. Like, should we be lumping them together? And if so, like, what do we learn from, from that? Yeah, I think it, both in neuroscience and in the history, as I saw it, I was really impressed by the lesson that addiction is in all of us. I think what you're talking about is that the, the processes that go awry in a person with addiction are not somehow fundamentally distinct from similar sorts of processes that we could look at through a behavioral economics lens, like delayed discounting or like the divided self that everyone struggles with. And so if that's the case, and there's no meaningful distinction in kind, and it's only a distinction in degree, then are we all on the same addiction continuum? And I think that's a really challenging and vexing answer. Where I ultimately land on this is that I think we should hold the word addiction very loosely. And I actually like the way it was described when it first entered the English language about 500 years ago. It didn't mean some sort of extreme disorder. It didn't mean something uh, neatly segregated from so-called healthy behavior. It was a much broader and deeper term about a type of devotion that anybody could have. And it was more of an action than it was a status. So in other words, it wasn't something that happened to you. It was something that you did, but it was very, very strong. It wasn't like, oh, I'm addicted to Wordle because I like to do it every day. It was an addiction as a, a willful action of giving up the will. So 
I don't know that we could be very successful or that it's very useful to police the borders of addiction very tightly, especially given that we have those 500 years of culture and human history uh, that we're essentially working against if we try to narrow it to some sort of specific type of problem with substances. Uh, that's something that, that's happened much more recently in human history. It was really only the beginning of the 20th century that people started framing addiction in those terms. Well, so let's talk a little bit about what was going on at that time and, and why we swung into this direction of like, no, addiction is a biological disease and sort of what are the consequences of that, that swing? Yeah, one thing that was happening was in the earlier part of the 20th century, in 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, the nation was really obsessed with opioids. Cocaine, cannabis to an extent and to a slightly later extent. But the thing that really kicked off drug prohibition, which happened before alcohol prohibition, was concern about opioids. That was at a time where morphine had already kind of burst out at this very powerful purified substance that was also being very aggressively marketed by a relatively deregulated medical profession. Also, heroin came out around that time and opioids were associated with the wrong type of user. They were, they were associated with largely poor urban populations, often immigrants, and so there's a great deal of xenophobia bound up there. And so the drug became the most feared thing. And this also overlaps with other types of racist and xenophobic panics. So there was a massive panic about black cocaine use in the South, spreading across the whole country to the point where the president was commenting on it. And then there was also a massive panic about smoked opium in the West, largely, in response to massive waves of Chinese immigration. But so the result was, around this time, the medical establishment got really, really concerned with opioids. Opioids became the model for addiction. It was thought to be the, the one overarching, clearest, purest example of what addiction is. And so everything was sort of back-engineered from that example. There's some reason to that. And we use models in science, of course. It's necessary to have model organisms or model behaviors or whatnot. But the problem with studying opioids as if they were the, the one true addiction or the purest form of addiction is it totally blinded us to other types of drug problems because people put all the power in the drug like a possessing force almost in the same way that uh, they put all the power in in the drug around the time of the alcohol temperance movements in say like the 19th century and so researchers got entirely focused on tolerance and withdrawal from opioids kind of like what you're talking about with Travis Reeder and the the issue of coming off of uh, prescription pain pills and so they missed a massive wave of stimulant problems because stimulants were like amphetamine were invented or, and disseminated and then taken up by powerful pharmaceutical companies also in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And be, because we were so focused on opioids, totally missed the boat on the, on the full spectrum of the addictive experience. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So the consequences then, you know, in some ways were that people then were who were diagnosed as addicts were almost shuttled away into these kinds of treatment facilities. You describe one, narco, which really stuck stuck with me. Can, can you tell us a little bit about sort of like this almost like criminalization of addiction that happened and and sort of what, you know, yeah, like what the consequences were of that? Oh, it was absolutely criminalized to the point where the American Medical Association came out explicitly in opposition to the treatment of opioid addiction. And some people even just called it shallow, the the, the notion that addiction was an issue to be treated by the medical profession. It's just a vice. It's just a bad choice. And that's notable because a lot of people think that like, oh, before 1920s, 1930s, medicine saw addiction as a moral failing and then later we medicalized it and that was a big advance. Well, it was more complicated than that. There were actually waves of physicians at the latter part of the 19th century and then also around the time of the Revolutionary War and then back in the United Kingdom, even earlier than that, who had a sort of more nuanced and integrative view of addiction as a medical problem. So it doesn't necessarily follow that this was the the, the one polarity, that it was either moral or medical and that it was always moral prior to this time. But it was true that like the 1920s to the 1960s, enormous crackdowns. Uh, one, one historian has called it the classic period of drug control, meaning that prohibition absolutely dominated. And of course, within that, there was an effort to preserve a two-tiered system for people with privilege, largely white people, people with uh, resources. The problem was there was such overarching prohibitionist sentiment and there were so few opportunities to actually get treatment that that sort of racist and oppressive segregation of addiction treatment rebounded to hurt everybody and even very wealthy people such as the founders of even Alcoholics Anonymous who were struggling with such a quotidian drug as alcohol really really struggled to get quality care there were these little islands of alcohol treatment available but they were few and far between and they were they got kind of removed from the medical profession, and so they weren't very good, uh, and they certainly didn't work all that well. But we still have sort of the legacy of that today, where our treatment systems are kind of sort of allied with criminal legal efforts, where a huge proportion of people go into treatment under the threat of coercion, legal coercion, or maybe informal forms of coercion. But for decades and decades, a lot, a lot of treatment systems, and I'm sure your listeners know this, anybody who's had a personal experience with addiction with their friends or family know that treatment systems are almost one size fits all in their focus on controlling people's behavior, 
abstinence only and even any use, which really is symptomatic of the problem, winds up often getting people kicked out of treatment. So let's talk a little bit about sort of what are the biopsychosocial models now that that maybe you feel most accurately describe what addiction is and and sort of like how this approach to treatment what needs to be improved like let's can can we can you give us a sense of like is there a, a model or a set of models that you really feel like okay this is where we are heading this is the right direction and then what does that mean for you know the way treatment is administered. And when you say model, do you mean a neuroscientific or a medical model? I mean, I guess so. I mean, I think that I think that it probably has to also include. um, But yeah, like, like, can you explain to us what happens in an addict's brain that leads them to become an addict versus, you know, or is, is that like, do we know now that it's like if we're all if you know it used to be that well if your parents were alcoholics then like you really needed to watch your drinking because you know you had a much higher likelihood of of there that there was this hereditary component to addiction particularly with alcohol i don't know about other drugs but that seemed to the one that was like you know i mean what where are we on that in terms of the latest science Yeah, I I asked about it because I think that we need a more pluralistic perspective on the way we understand and explain addiction. I did neuroscience research, uh, still affiliated with the medical center, and get a lot out of neuroscience and clinical care. So I I don't mean to be a sort of deflationary commentator who says we, we should just get rid of neuroscience altogether, that it's all a social construct. I think that's ridiculous. And I think we get misled when we get too attached to a singular model. You know, we've wasted decades and decades of people debating and talking past each other because they think they're talking, they're arguing for or against, for example, like a disease model when people on either sides of the polarization have completely different ideas of what that entails. And I think the best read of the research today is that it's massively heterogeneous, that addiction may have a sort of outward phenomenological similarity in that I have tremendous identification with other people who had the experience of severe addiction. There's a sort of fellowship there that even if I go travel abroad, and when we used to do things like that, uh, and I go I go into like a mutual help recovery meeting, even across a language barrier, you get a sense of sharing in a common fellowship of a similar sort of suffering. Uh, but that's almost existential. It's like the downstream consequence of what contemporary science, in my view, uh, has explained as really diverse causes, an intersecting web of different causes and conditions, which vary tremendously from person to person. And this is an intuition that people have had for a long time in the history, like going back to the Napoleonic Wars. There are examples of doctors trying to divide up people with addiction into different subtypes. And we don't have really science, solid science there, so I don't want to overstep and say that we know more than we actually do. But we can say, I believe, that there are different typologies, at least in the sense of different contributions from, say, genetics versus one of the really trendy topics today, trauma versus early childhood experiences versus, say, some sort of more personality level uh, temperamental drive. Those things can be operative. Maybe one person has a little sprinkling of each of them. Maybe somebody else, their addiction is very, very strongly driven by early life trauma. And so I don't know if in 2122, we're going to have 
addiction subscript one, addiction subscript two, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would be sort of surprising given the, the, again, like the experience of it, the actual experiential similarities between people with addiction. But I do think it's very, very diverse. And actually we get into a lot of trouble and we have gotten into a lot of trouble when we make assumptions that all addictions came into being the same way, they all operate in the same way, they all need the same kinds of recovery and treatment. Because the truth of the matter is, there's another very strong and recently emerging uh, line of research that there are many, many different pathways to recovery. And uh, for too long, we've had a really strong focus on a single pathway that has excluded a lot of people. I mean, I think that's what is so exciting to me, both about your book, but also about the field in general, is that there is this recognition that addiction is not you know, one single disease that will be best treated with one pathway or one treatment regimen. And so that's really exciting because I feel like that's going to be a, a lot more helpful to a lot more people. And it seems to match, you know, sort of the heterogeneity of, of people's experiences. And so I, I wondered if you might talk a little bit now then about what are some of the changes that you would like to see in the way that addiction then is addressed by the medical profession, because I do think that after all, you know, a person who is suffering the negative consequences of an addiction to, let's just say, drugs for now, although I think that pornography or other, you know, highly addictive behaviors can sort of have some of the same problems. But like, what in your mind is like kind of the best case scenario for the future, if you, you know, in terms of how, where people seek treatment and how that works? The bottom line is, there is a best case scenario in terms of concrete policy measures. And we know that they would save lives. And we have known that they would save lives. And people have been talking about how they would save lives for quite a long time now at least on the order of decades, and it's still not happening. So that's one of my main motivations for writing the book is that I do think that there are policy levers that we could pull on, and we also need a change in consciousness. The The fundamental grassroots change, if you will, that we need is a broader and deeper conversation about addiction to fully appreciate its diversity and its heterogeneity and all of the different cultural and social factors that have influenced it for so long. So that being said, you know, there's a lot that we could do in the near term to save lives. We could massively scale up harm reduction efforts. Talk about this a little bit in the book. Harm reduction is a complicated notion, but at its ba most basic, it's a set of concrete interventions that save lives without increasing or somehow encouraging or enabling drug use. Those things include... Uh, syringe service programs that give people sterile supplies so that they don't get harmed as they use drugs, which also provides an opportunity to engage people in care and get them the help and support they need. Overdose prevention sites, which are really all over the news now because New York City is uh, trialing one. And it may be in the next couple of months that the Biden administration actually rules or issues guidance about whether or not those can proceed in other jurisdictions. And then also just in the medical field, we we, we touched on this before, but we, we have a massive urgent need to mainstream addiction care. It's way too divided. And the notion that many, many emergency rooms, for example, can't properly treat opioid use disorder. Uh, somebody comes in, even if they say they want treatment, they'll get handed a Xerox copy and said, okay, show up to detox tomorrow, or you're going to have to go in on your own why can't we prescribe life-saving medications to somebody there and link them directly to care? There are efforts going on in this, in this field, but we need much, much, much more of that. But again, I, I describe in the book that 
we need access and we need better encouragement of a lot of those behaviors. And still, we know from, for example, providers who are uh, already practicing in those types of situations or have access to those types of addiction treatments, that there's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of people who say, I don't really want to have patients with addiction in my practice or they seem like a difficult class of patients to treat. And that is kind of true. I was a difficult patient when I was a patient in certain ways. But we treat a lot of uh, challenging conditions in mental health treatment. So I think a more fundamental change that needs to happen is just getting a better sense of care and compassion and hope for people with addiction. And since our listeners are really interested in the impact that science can have on society, I do urge you to read Carl Eric Fisher's book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, uh, to get those specific examples of ways in which um, you can advocate for change. But I, I wanted to end with this question of good versus bad drugs. And, you know, this notion that there are some drugs that are highly addictive and there are other drugs that are totally fine. <laughs> And just how misguided that kind of dichotomy is. Um, you know, you you talk about Adderall that you used as exactly as it was prescribed and that it still got you into trouble. And I know a lot of people think that, you know, cannabis is totally benign and that it's much less damaging than alcohol, which is probably true in a lot of cases, but it's also not totally benign. Um, so I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about how we should be thinking about this false dichotomy. And, and when we're making choices in our own lives, like what are the red flags as we, you know, use drugs to try to enhance ours? I mean, even, even MDMA in psychotherapy for, for trauma can be highly effective and life-changing, but it's also a Schedule One compound. So how does a person who wants to avoid or maybe has a propensity towards becoming an addict, how do they make decisions about what kinds of drugs and how to use them is okay versus not okay? Yeah, I think it's very good to be careful about the types of messages we're receiving about drugs. And you ask about red flags and my mind goes immediately to market forces and what I call in the book addiction supply industries. So, but going back to the very, very first tobacco merchants in the 16th century, people have sought to sort of sanitize and tell stories about their potentially addictive products that seek to absolve them of any sort of blame or harm. And that was certainly true in uh, cigarettes, in tobacco. That's that's the drug that will kill both of my parents, essentially, even though both of them struggled with alcoholism. And that's also true to an extent in in the case of cannabis now, that there are tremendous market forces uh, seeking to obscure the potential harms of cannabis. Now, listen, I am not against cannabis, and it, for sure it is less harmful than alcohol, and for sure it is less harmful than tobacco. But the notion that it is completely without any harms whatsoever is preposterous. It is very well documented that there are some harms in some people who use cannabis, but maybe a very small proportion, maybe way, way smaller than our racist legacies of prohibitionary drug policies have sold it. But the sort of pendular swing from good drug to bad drug has harmed so many people over time. And I guess, again, for a red flag is if it's good or it's bad, it's probably worth being skeptical about it because uh, drugs are at bottom just substances that people use for reasons. And people have used them for reasons throughout all of human history. 
So there's some some sort of like all or nothing cartoon image of it being totally beneficial or totally harmful that should immediately be cause for caution. Well, I mean, I think that I, I do have one last follow-up question, which is, you know, let's say you're a person, like, is there a litmus test that you yourself can take that can tell you whether or not you're on the road or on the slippery slope downward, you know, into into a place where you would be an addict, like on the way down there, are there are there things that people should look out for if, say, they're using drugs recreationally or even as prescribed on label if they're drugs like stimulants or pain meds or or sort of can you give us a sense of like here's some warning signs that you should look out for so that you don't get to a place where it really blows up your life? Yeah, I would say don't worry about whether or not you eventually become something called a person with addiction. I would say focus on today, focus on harms, focus on what is actually happening because for too long, we've neglected the sort of middle ground. Uh, the vast majority of people who have problems with substances are in the sort of mild to moderate range. And a lot of those people grow out of their problems. But that doesn't mean you don't kill somebody in a DUI. It doesn't mean that you don't, say, uh, cheat on your partner and cause incalculable harm and ruin a relationship you care about. You know, those are real harms too. That Just because it doesn't result in the sort of like severe and enduring picture of addiction that we have doesn't mean they're not real harms. So I guess what I would say is I'm skeptical of that stark division. And in fact, the research doesn't really support that division between normal people over here and people with addiction over here. Uh, it's actually very fluid. It's very dynamic. A lot of people can have even severe substance use problems and then resolve those problems even without medical treatment. So it's more a matter of you know, let me put it this way. I think the labels can be a distraction. And I've seen so many people who have told a story to themselves about themselves saying, well, I'm not really an addict. And so I don't need to worry about this or that thing. And um, I think it can be really misleading because if you're, if you're there in the middle and you're actually having drug harms, then it deserves attention, whether or not it, it qualifies for this or that label. You know, and I think also there's the other side where a person says, well, I've been labeled as being an addict or, uh, you know, an alcoholic or and and therefore I can never recover. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think that also can be damaging. No, that's absolutely true. I You know, I worry about uh, calling addiction a disease. I'm not for or against some sort of disease model because I don't we've discussed I don't think there is one model over time. I think it's just a double edged sword that carries so many different implications with it. And one particular implication of that label is that it's, it can be fatalistic and pessimistic. And we even have some research on this, that uh, buying into the notion of this sort of binary stark division between normal and abnormal as regards to substance use can lead to people being more likely to relapse and more likely to have problems. So, you know, but even people, and, and people recognize this from the history of 12-step treatment and other mutual help societies going back centuries, actually, even people with very severe addictions have tremendous capacity for change, have tremendous capacity for recovery and improving not just their use, but also their, their functioning and their meaning and their purpose in life. So I, I think it's really important to be wary of what's communicated with those sorts of labels and especially resisting the pull of fatalism and pessimism. Carl Eric Fisher, thank you so much for sharing your story in the book and your research as well and for talking to us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much. Real pleasure to be here. 
So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about Carl's work, you can visit his website, carlericfisher.com slash book. That's C-A-R-L-E-R-I-K-F-I-S-H-E-R.com. Check out Carl Eric Fisher. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rayhala, Michael Galgool, Eric Lark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode is edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.